Welcome back to A Push for Understanding. This is chapter 18, The Enlightened Despots. And this chapter is kind of weird because it takes place over a pretty short amount of time, and the implications are quite small when uh, compared to previous chapters like the Renaissance or um, the Scientific Revolution, the Enlightenment. And so this podcast is probably going to be one of the shorter videos because there's just a lot less to talk about and there's a lot less um, figures and important um, events that take place during that, during this time period. So the enlightened despots are most broadly a group of absolutist figures, absolutist rulers in European history who took the ideas of the enlightenment and applied them to their rule. Essentially, um, the ideas of the Enlightenment, the ideas of uh, religious freedom and religious toleration, particularly of the Jews, um, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of, you know, government assemblies, particularly parliaments in England, um, or like just the way we view um, absolutist rulers. Absolutist rulers no longer believe that they are, you know, destined by God to rule, that their reign is, uh, you know, approved of by God, and that they need to, um, that their power is derived from a, some sort of divine power. Instead, they see themselves more as servants of the state who need to, you know, serve the state and uh, guide public policy in the interest of the people and of the state. Um, and so generally, those are the uh, ideals of the Enlightenment being expressed by the Enlightened Despots. And so there are three major enlightened despots of European history, uh, Catherine the Great of Russia, Joseph II of Austria, and Frederick uh, II or Frederick the Great of Prussia. And all three of them have uh, policies or make reforms that are uh, in the ideals of the Enlightenment. All to differing degrees. I think not. Uh, I think of the three of them, Joseph II is by far. Um, the better ruler and the more enlightened of the three. Um, but his policies come with kind of a big asterisk, which we'll get to in a second. So starting off, we'll start with Catherine the Great of Russia. Um, Catherine the Great makes a lot of bureaucratic reforms, and she sort of toys with this idea of abolishing serfdom, or essentially uh, slavery for the poor. Now, a slavery based on race, but instead a slavery based on your class and your wealth at birth. Uh, she toys with this idea of uh, getting rid of serfdom, but eventually she is kind of forced to by the other nobles to uh, give up on that idea. Um, a major pre a major peasant revo rebellion in southern Russia, um, you know, breaks out and challenges her rule, and she realizes that many of the nobles and many of the um, bourgeoisie in her government, and who kind of give her her money, give her uh, the necessary men for an army, give her the industry and her power, her real power, um, they are more important than, um, you know, freeing the serfs. And so eventually Catherine the Great abandons her policy of freeing the serfs and violently crushes that uh, serf rebellion. And so for that reason, I think um, 
Catherine the Great is probably the weakest of the enlightened despots, just because she allows her values to be undermined by uh, political power and wealth and money and the influence of the nobles in Russia. Um, secondly, we have Frederick the Great, or Frederick II of, Pr of Prussia. He kind of sits in the middle of the three. Um, he makes, again, a lot of bureaucratic reforms. He generally does push Prussia in the right direction in terms of its military. Uh, the Prussian military, as we'll talk about later, is massive, one of the largest armies uh, in Europe, despite Prussia being quite small in population and size comparatively. Uh, and in addition to that, um, he makes a lot of reforms uh, towards more religious toleration. Asterix, kind of. Um, Frederick II really hates the Jews a lot, um, and he speaks out against the Jews uh, greatly. Even in many of his speeches, uh, he talks about being a servant of the people, being a servant of the state, uh, the importance of serving the people, and then directly takes like a, a 180 degree turn and says how much he hates the Jews, how much, um, you know, he has no respect for them. So Joseph II, keeping with German tradition, not a big fan of the Jews. Um, and then finally, the probably most enlightened of the enlightened despots is Joseph II. Now, Joseph II makes a ton of reforms. He uh, issues, you know, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, religious toleration, even for the Jews, um, to a certain extent. The Jewish population at this point um, is restricted a lot in public life. They can't get certain jobs, particularly in the government. They are not allowed to have certain freedoms, like freedom of the press, freedom of religion, even basic freedoms like uh, certain religious toleration reforms uh, that took place even during the, um, you know, the rise of Protestantism doesn't take place in the same way for the Jews. Joseph II starts a starts the beginning of the religious toleration for the Jews at this point. Um, in addition to this, Joseph II completely abolishes serfdom, unlike um, Frederick the Great or Catherine the Great. And Joseph II makes basically a grand restructuring of Austrian uh, sort of political life and the and the nobility, and puts a lot of checks on even the monarchy itself, um, which is all, as we could probably all agree right now, really good. Um, a lot of these reforms are popular. They would be seen as sort of Western, um, sort of Western ideals, Western values, uh, a big leap forward, especially for a country like Austria, who is uh, Catholic and uh, very uh, conservative. And in addition to that, I forgot to mention that Joseph II challenges a lot of the uh, sort of Catholic Church's influence in Austria, completely separates um, the church and the state from each other, um, and completely, I wouldn't say completely, but attempts to completely remove the influence of the Catholic Church in Austria. So naturally, all these great things are completely hated by everybody in Austria, and when Joseph II dies, a lot of his reforms are completely, uh, you know, legislatively destroyed, and life pretty much goes back to completely how it was. And that is not because the serfs, or the former serfs, uh, 
you know, lost their power, lost their control. The serfs, who were just free um, from their serfdom, disliked Joseph II's own policies. Uh, he was seen as too radical, uh, too progressive even for his time. And so when Joseph II is eventually kicked out um, upon his death, he a lot of his reforms are just completely drawn back and very little is actually achieved. And so this is what I was talking about with this being kind of a weird chapter because we see socially a shift in how leaders should be. And we see even leaders admitting that and accepting that. But in practice, little actual reform is made. All three of the enlightened despots um, fail to permanently impact their country um, in significant ways, which you would kind of expect to take place after such a big uh, social and political and philosophical revolution like the Enlightenment. But uh, Joseph II, Catherine the Great, and Frederick the Great all pretty much dropped the ball on this, to be honest. And all three of them are honestly not significantly different to the, the other absolute rulers of the time. And so, uh, on that pretty sad note, to be honest, that their values and the shifting values of the time didn't keep track with the absolute rulers, let's talk about the rest of Europe. So, France and England do not adopt uh, many of the enlightened Enlightenment policies. Uh, Great Britain has pretty much already adopted most of them during the Glorious Revolution, so as per usual, England is ahead of the ball on this on this one. France, however, um, the Louis, King Louis, don't make a lot of significant progress, and this is eventually going to ball up into the French Revolution, which, hey, is our next chapter. Um, so France and England, they don't play a big role with the Enlightenment or the Enlightenment despots quite yet, but we'll get into that uh, quite a lot during the Napoleonic era and the French Revolution. In addition to this, the absolutism in Central Europe stays pretty much the same. Like I said, uh, Prussia and Austria uh, have enlightened despots, but beyond that, most of Central Europe, most of the German states, most of the uh, Balkans do not significantly change. That is, except Poland. The partitioning of Poland, the three partitions of Poland actually, um, all take place during this time period where Prussia, uh, Austria, and Russia all agree to split Poland, declare war, split Poland, and basically they split Poland three times, divide up the land amongst those three countries, um, mostly for a balance of power. They all, all three of them see themselves as uh, enemies, well, as sort of enemies of each other, and so they want to balance that power between the three of them. And Poland, who, like we've talked about, I think a few times at this point, Poland is very decentralized. Absolutism never takes place there, and so a strong absolutist king uh, is never able to, you know, stand up to these absolutist rulers, the absolutist armies of them. And so Poland basically just kind of collapses as the nobles sell off more and more parts of Poland. And then finally, uh, Eastern Europe is mostly dominated by Russia. We've talked about Catherine the Great and her sort of asterisk, 
enlightened despot rule. Um, but beyond that, uh, most of Scandinavia stays the same. Uh, besides, essentially, we just see the absolute withdrawal of Sweden as considered an, uh, you know, absolute power, uh, power from the Thirty Years' War, and instead Sweden sort of becomes a second or potentially third, depending on how you would classify it, a third power. Um, finally, we have our two big wars. We have the War of Austrian Succession and the Seven Years' War. So the War of Austrian Succession, it rebalances um, the alliances. Um, essentially, at this point, uh, Maria Theresa, the uh, successor... Essentially, at this point, Maria Theresa, um, her succession to the Austrian th throne um, creates a what we call the Pragmatic Solution, in which various European powers agree to recognize um, Maria's claim to the throne. However, once her father dies, the Pragmatic Situation basically explodes. Countries don't recognize her as the real ruler, and so the you know, the War of Austrian Succession is over the, um, you know, the battle of who's going to become the successor of Austria. And what is important to note at this point is that really only two big changes take place. One, Prussia invades uh, Austria, and they are, an uh, they are able to annex a province of Austria and absolve it into their own kingdom. And France makes a very very poor decision, and gets beat up by most of Europe. Um, during this time, during the War of Austrian Succession, France, which we consider the most powerful country in Europe at this point, gets beaten. And that is quite an embarrassment for them. They should not have gotten beaten. Uh, it's a major upset. And the real reason and the real consequence of uh, France being beaten is the UK, the UK Navy, and the UK colonies across the world. And so during the War of Austrian Succession, the British Navy's dominance over the European continent and uh, the beginning seeds of Britain taking over as the major colonizing power begins to take place. And then that um, major colonizing that major colonizer power is cemented during the Seven Years' War. And the Seven Years' War is very, very important for uh, many host of reasons. The UK is able to gain pretty much um, all dominance over the American colonies and Quebec and the colony of Quebec over the, uh, the French. Britain is able to uh, capture all French land in India, and that cements... British rule of India for the next 300 years or so. So, obviously a very, very important war at that point. India is a major economic power, um, particularly for cotton. And we're going to see that in the Industrial Revolution, that uh, the UK and India's relationship is going to help uh, mostly the UK industrialize in the, in the time period, far before the French are even able to. And so the Seven Years' War is a major political, economic, and military defeat for uh, the French. And that means that they're 2-0 uh, on these major wars during this time, which means that there's a lot of anger 
over the lack of change in the enlight over the enlightened despots. Remember, the enlightenment majorly takes place in France, and the lack of change, cemented by a poor economy, cemented by two failed wars where the favorite power, France, loses to you know their their main rival, the UK. Uh, that's going to cement a lot of anger and a lot of rage. Uh, during this time period. And then finally, sort of to just throw in here, there's a major sort of shifting of military power and how militaries are seen. Um, the composition of armies are essentially that a more permanent, more uh, a more large army is being raised all the time, which means that, particularly with Prussia, Prussia is able to send in their permanent, large-standing army to intervene in conflicts. They took, or well, they intervened in the Netherlands, which shows a declining power of the Dutch, first of all, but also a rising power in the Prussians. And most importantly, they're able to take a province off of uh, the Austrians, who um, lose the War of Austrian Succession. And so that is pretty much all I wanted to say. There's a few social growths, but honestly, they're not really that important. Marriage and birth rates are uh, sort of changing at this point. We see a rise in population, but that is not due to rising birth rates. That's more uh, due to declining death rates. And so essentially, that's pretty much all of the Enlightened Despot era. There's not like I said, very much happening at this point, but it is setting the stage for things like the French Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, and eventually even things like the Franco-Prussian War, the Crimean War, World War One, World War Two, etc. So this is a majorly influential time period, but a lot of the changes and developments don't take place right now. They'll become more exponentially important um, throughout the rest of European history. So that's all I wanted to say, and I hope you learned something new, and I hope you'll come back for the next podcast. Goodbye.